Well, welcome to the Think Education podcast. Judith and myself today, we're joined by a uh, special guest, but also, I think, friend of the show. Um, it's interesting. Uh, Judith will give the, the formal sort of, you know, proper, polished, professional introduction. Um, but I was just reflecting, actually, I think I've been aware of or known you, Nigel, more or less as long as I've been in transnational education. I mean, I, I can remember being introduced first time at a conference in, uh, I think it was Hong Kong. I can remember a, a comment you made at API when you were talking about books, not MOOCs, uh, about the online onslaught we were having back then. I remember reading something you posted on LinkedIn about trying to write an article while only on a plane to prove to your colleagues that it could be done, um, following your time in Fiji. Um, it's been, yeah, it's been very interesting sort of um, watching I mean, I hesitate to use the word stalking, obviously, but like watching a career alongside, it's been uh, it's all been fascinating to 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 listen to you talk and to to see you present and to indeed read. And I've quoted your work uh, in my own, so uh, it's a pleasure to have you have you on. And I think I managed to make it through that intro, Judith, without misspelling, mispronouncing, or babbling over anything. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hand over to you while I'm ahead. Yeah, quit while the going's good, Christopher. Although I did say misspelt. It is. It is my. My job, yes, yeah. My job uh, uh, now to formally introduce um, uh, Nigel. But as you say, uh, Chris, we've all known each other for many years. Nigel and, and I indeed have pounded the streets of China together, haven't we? Uh, giving a, a road tour at one point, as I as I recall, in three different cities, which was. Uh, few years ago but you know an, an absolute pleasure um so um so just a few words then about about just to introduce you really um Nigel before we kick off with uh, having our, our conversation um Nigel's professor of um, international higher education and vice president of global and community relations at the University of Limerick uh, in Ireland and prior to joining the University of Limerick in 2020 uh he was Vice-Chancellor of a Fiji National uh, University. Just pick the nice places to go to, don't you, Nigel? Let's just be serious. He's also served as Pro-Vice-Chancellor International at Nottingham Trent University and uh, University uh, of uh, Canterbury in New Zealand and has been a visiting professor at universities in Belarus, China, Poland and the U United States. Uh, there's a lot we could say about Nigel, but... To be honest, I can't spend the next 30 minutes going over everything that Nigel's done. But as we all know, you know, Nigel has for many years really had a, a strong commitment to internationalisation. And I think, and we've seen this in his presentations and, and read it in the things that he's written and really has put internationalisation, you know, at, at the heart of um, the student experience in, in particular. So he sat on a number of boards and a, and a number of committees from those more local to, to, to De Montfort University in Kazakhstan and, of course, as the chair of the QS Global Advisory um, Committee. And his research interests really are, you know, in internationalisation of higher education, but particularly in the management of, of transnational education partnerships. As I say, Nigel, we, we could go on and on about all the different things that that you've done and your impact on, on the sector and how we've learned from you and, and with you over the years, which has been an absolute pleasure. So we are delighted that you're here with us today to, 
to have some discussion around international higher education. And I, and I wonder whether I could just maybe start the, uh, the, the ball rolling here. What I particularly have always been interested in uh, is the way in which you do put internationalisation at the heart of the student experience. You know, many of the things that you've written about really have that, uh, uh, the crux of, of what internationalisation is about and the importance of it. And I wonder whether you could just start by telling us a little bit about that, you know, about how you think, um, and maybe even post-COVID, you know, how that might have shifted in terms of having internationalisation at the heart of our student experience at universities. Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you for having me uh, on the show. I mean, I think, as, as Chris and you have said, I mean, our, our kind of careers have bounced along in, in, in parallel. And, uh, you know, it's been great to have been part of a, of a, I suppose, a community of practice and a community of researchers where we've, we, share, we share each other's ideas um, and we bounce ideas off each other. So just as you were kind enough to say, you read sort of one or two of the things I've written, it's in the same way, you know, I've, I've uh, very closely followed uh, you know, the work that you two have done. And, of course, you know, Chris has been right at the heart of transnational education in Malaysia and now in Dubai. So uh, he's a real authority on this subject, which is, which is great to have in the network. Um, I mean, I think with the um, with internationalisation, you, you're right. I think we're at a kind of, uh, we, we, we're now at post-COVID, I think, a bit of a pivotal um, point. Um, and I suppose, you know, if I think about uh, the sort of journey that, that I uh, went on, uh, you know, I was really at the start of my career, you know, um, as the Cold War ended and um, the international education really opened up in the 1990s, um, you know, there was a, there was a very rapid explosion in um, international student recruitment in in some of the countries like Australia, New Zealand, UK, Canada, um, very much driven by export education, and and I think that. Um, we kind of, beyond the direct commercial benefits, we sort of assumed that, you know, the benefits uh, to our students of studying in a kind of diverse global student body were self-evident, they just would be realised naturally. And I think, look, for me, uh, the realisation was moving to, coming from, in New Zealand, we had um, very large, you know, we're probably 30% international uh, students in the university I was at, but the, the student mix was actually uh, not very diverse. It was probably 70, 80% of the international students would be Chinese. Um, and there was um, kind of very significant clustering within particular disciplines, you know, areas like finance and uh, operations research. And so it wasn't, I wasn't seeing it as particularly a, a great student experience either for domestic students or for the international students. And I realised then that we needed to do more if we were going to, if the students were going to really benefit from that kind of cross-cultural uh, learning that they could potentially gain. And, and when I moved uh, to the UK in 2011, um, I suppose in a sense I felt, oh my gosh, you know, I'm moving back in time because, you know, I was at a university not in Trent, which had a big student population. But was almost exclusively focused on 
international student recruitment. It was very commercially oriented. And, and I just felt that this was, uh, we, were, we were kind of risking shortchanging both the international and the domestic students of the gains they could have had with a more structured, you know, and uh, detailed uh, sort of a, um, approach to kind of um, getting them to learn from each other. So we did do a lot of work there at really trying to build internationalization to the heart of the student experience, both in terms of the, the curriculum embedding um, student exchange, um, but particularly with the Global Lounge movement, trying to find ways to kind of um, bring together and share uh, between different different kind of international groups. Um, now, I think, say, so I feel now, um, you know, in 2023, post-COVID, as I say, I think we're at a pivotal moment. I think what we have... Um, I suppose COVID, you know, was almost an existential crisis. It forced us to look very hard on a number of different things. Um, it's as we come out and we came out of COVID. I think awareness of social uh, sustainable development, of social global social justice. Uh, these things were, I suppose, ratcheted up many levels uh, as a consequence of, uh, of what we've experienced through COVID. And I, I feel now there is a real there's a real challenge to that model of traditional international export education that, um, and I've been I've been starting to write about it and think about it, and and, and I suppose to recognise that um, you know international internationalisation as traditionally defined in the um, in the kind of main English speaking countries. Is, is actually highly exploitative. It's a very, very successful business model in the sense that, um, you know, recruiting large numbers of international students um, at full, full cost uh, or above full cost um, allows you to cross-subsidise research, to, 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 to invest in facilities, to invest in, in, in attracting top talent. And clearly, you know, if you look at the university, the so-called leading universities and lead tables, um, their percentage of internationalisation, the percentage of international uh, enrolments, is uh, outperforms the national sectors by a country mile. So, if you look at universities like UCL and, and uh, um, uh, Kings and, and so on, so Imperial, these universities are around about 60-70% international enrolments, um, and they can use that. And, and it's the same in, in the states. It's the same in in, in, in all the major markets. If, you, if they can use this revenue to cross-subsidise fantastic facilities, the top researchers in the world, and the whole thing becomes a, a, a virtuous circle. You know, you're driving yourself up the league tables, you become more attractive to international students, you can attract the top talent for the, for the researchers, um, and you can see how, many, how, how easy it is for universities, for presidents, vice-chancellors, to kind of fall into that spell, fall under that spell, that internationalisation is the path to global greatness. And, of course, you know, the, the, the problem is, what did we do to achieve that? We, we scoured the world for uh, fast-growing developing countries where the domestic higher education sector was underdeveloped. We recruited the, um, the children of the elites who could afford to pay these full-cost fees to our universities, 
Our governments colluded in this. I mean, the, the, the Australians started this trend 20 years ago, almost to the day, when they aligned their, um, their kind of post-study visas to, uh, to, to the kind of needs of higher education. But governments then compete to be attractive destinations for international students by offering very favourable and discriminatory regimes that discriminate in favour of students who've studied in country by giving them, uh, and, and we've all done it, I mean the UK has done it, Ireland has done it, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, um, and, and so you, you, not only are, they, are you attracting the elites to come, um, you're privileging those elites with, with, with kind of uh, high quality education at full cost, you then uh, encouraging many of them to stay through accelerating the brain drain. Um, and so, you know, the whole, at one level in terms of SDGs, this is looking like a, a very exploitative kind of neo-colonial model, which isn't, it isn't neo-colonial in any sense that the universities are seeking, um, you know, that kind of domination. But it's just that that's the consequence because the universities are being, are being you know, the way that the whole funding uh, models are set up, they're being encouraged to behave in this way. Um, and at the same time, the kind of carbon footprint of this activity is extraordinary. You know, uh, I mean, we're sending people uh, all the way, all around the world for periods of three or four days to go to, to, go to fairs, to, uh, you know, to go to conferences and so on. Um, and then the students themselves, you know, they may travel back home two or three times a year. Um, you know, so somebody, Chinese student going to and from Beijing, that's, that's probably two or three tons of carbon dioxide in every round trip. Um, so I think, I think the, what, where we're kind of challenged is we come out of COVID and people have started talking about how do we do things differently, we're more aware, you know, social justice, of Black Lives Matter, of, of sustainable development. But if we're going to kind of do more than pay lip service to it, we're going to have to confront this, this industry we've created that's sustaining, um, you know, the world's leading universities. And it's going to be a difficult um, roundabout to jump off. So I think, you know, when I kind of think back, um, I suppose, 12 years when, when I was starting Nottingham Trent, when I was trying to kind of get the university to embrace internationalization as not a commercial activity, but a means of changing the mindsets of, of young people and creating that. I mean, what, what we used to call, uh, what I've sometimes called ontological shock, you know, getting them to recognize their worldview is not the worldview, it's their particular perspective and there are other ways of thinking about the world and so on. I mean, I think that's really powerful uh, if you can, if you can, uh, Bring it about. But I think the challenge we face at this point, you know, 12 years later, is even more, it's more profound. You know, it's not, it's, it's about how do we get those benefits of internationalization, uh, but recognizing some of the, 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 the costs in terms of perpetuating global injustice, you know, exacerbating um, climate change and, and uh, so, so I think this is, I think it's a it's a very interesting time to be reflecting on, you know, where are we going with the internationalisation, um, and you know, anyway, I've, I've talked for far too long. You should have shut me up earlier, but um, oh, no. uh, 
all, all good stuff, Nigel, and and all absolutely highly highly relevant. And I suppose and a lot of things I think we could pick up on there. But one thing I was going to ask you anyway, actually, but you've really sort of come around to this this point is that challenge of of climate change. You know, something that I suppose was was um, drawn to all of our um, you know awareness, particularly during the the, the pandemic. I, I suppose actually, and when we weren't flying around the world so much, and when you could see the stars at night a little bit brighter, you know, and when you felt as though, notwithstanding the massive challenges that there were, that actually, on, from the planet's point of view. This might not necessarily have, have, have been a bad time. It might have been almost giving it a, a, a time to breathe. And and I suppose, and you, you've touched upon this in, in terms of um, the, the global movement of, of students. And I'm just wondering whether then, just to probe that a little bit more, whether you, you think now then, particularly sustainability and the issues around climate change, you know, will that really shape you know our international strategies let's say back at our our home base of an institution but potentially might there be areas within transnational education that might have been on the wane a little bit more I'm thinking particularly let's say even of 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 campuses over overseas that might have been something that seemed to be less um, of, of a of a priority for institutions might that now have something of a resurgence as we try to be a little bit more mindful of, of trying to to keep the planet that we're all living on you know in in one piece so i'd really be interested to hear nigel what your thoughts are on that yeah i, I think that's right at the heart of what we're talking about here is what's the shape of internationalization going to be um as we move forward and I think, you know, I, I was, in a previous life, I was an economist, and economists are notoriously um, bad at predicting turning points. So I published a paper in 2019, which was called The End of TNE. Um, and it was exactly what you're, you know, you're, you're kind of suggesting, was that it looked to me at that point that many of the drivers that had, had kind of uh, propelled the growth of TNE might be running out of steam, you know, as the, um, as you know, if we take Malaysia as a good example, where once it was the hotbed of transnational education for Australian and British universities, um, and they and gradually it had matured, and Chris seen this firsthand living there. I mean, it, it, you know, the, the sector had kind of matured and developed to the point where there were a small number of, of, of high quality branch campuses. But a lot of the more transactional t uh, T&E had disappeared because those private colleges had all become uh, universities in their own right um, and, and closed off that opportunity. So I, th I think, um, to answer your question, I think that that you know T&E is going to be uh, is going to be part of the shape uh, of the future of internationalisation. But it's more than just climate change. Uh, I think that I mean clearly. Uh, to the extent that you can get some of the benefits of having international students on campus at a lower carbon footprint, uh, that would be by sharing that education so that um, you know the students have part of their education, uh, you know, in their own country, and part of their education.
teaching, uh, let's say, at a British university. Um, and uh, so, but I think it's it's more than just uh, trying to minimise the carbon footprint. It's about the kind of social justice dimension to this. That the T and E of the kind that uh, you know Chris is involved with in in, in uh, Arab Emirates in Dubai. I mean, this is about uh, capacity building in the region as well. So it's no longer a kind of a sort of neo-colonial raid on resources. It's actually um, a partnership of peers in which, uh, as you as you operate uh, in the in the transnational partnership, you're transferring knowledge, experience, technology, educational technology to your to your kind of uh, partner or campus, and that's building capacity. So I, I see. Certainly, in, as we're grappling here at uh, University of Limerick, as we're sort of grappling with reinventing our internationalization strategy for a world of kind of uh, a more sustainable, uh, a more socially just um, uh, kind of uh, future, we're thinking very hard about the transnational partnerships as being at the core of it. So uh, rather than recruiting as it were, in the spot market by going to fairs and bringing students in for four years, that we'd be doing increasingly working with, uh, with partners, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, where, you know, there's a lot of activity taking place now. Um, you know, I've literally just come off a call uh, shortly with, with um, International University of East Africa, where, uh, you know, we're looking at a number of different uh, transnational partnerships there, and those, that's a university that's reaching some of the poorest, poorest elements of society in Uganda. Um, so there's a very strong kind of social justice dimension to this. So I do see that as being uh, a key part. I mean, the, the other thing we, we've been grappling with um, is, I suppose, that to, to, to get the benefits of internationalization, it's really difficult to... I mean, there was a lot of talk post-COVID about, and we've learned, you know, about could we replace physical reality, physical exchange or physical mobility with virtual mobility. And, you know, we've become, over the last three years, completely accustomed to this kind of conversation which is taking place across three countries. Um, so we know that, that we can do a number of things like this. But I think it's, it's very difficult or almost impossible to get the deep benefits of internationalization uh, from a television exchange like this. You know, uh, you know, if we were if we were in Dubai right now and then we were going out for dinner and we were and then we were meeting with Chris's colleagues and talking in depth about, you know, detail about their home lives and, you know, their aspirations and all that. It's it's just it's just not the same. I mean and I so I think we have to recognise that Physical mobility is an essential part of getting those benefits of internationalization. But what that means then, I think, for us as well in terms of our strategy is we need to be sure that we're getting the best return on the carbon investment. And the reason I say that is that um, uh, some, some student mobility is a very poor, gives a very poor return on investment. I mean, if you think about the, um, the kind of traditional American study centre in Europe, you know, an American university buys a nice building in Paris or London, they bring over a class of students 
together as a group with their American faculty and they spend three weeks in a summer school in London as a group and they just go around and moan about the fact that you don't get enough ice in the Coca-Cola and you can't buy Hershey bars. I mean, it, in terms of the depth of their international engagement, it's superficial. It couldn't be almost more superficial. It's academic tourism at its worst. Um, and I've said the same thing to faculty. You know, when you, um, you know, I, I, we all know, and we've all been guilty of this, you go, to, you go to a conference on the other side of the world and you end up hanging out with the same friends that you have with every other conference, drinking beer in the bar, and you have no real sense of engagement. Uh, I mean, I was in Bangkok two weeks ago, and there were there was a danger of that happening. I ended up spending a lot of time with colleagues in Chulalongkorn, but there was a sort of danger that there was a little clique of people. They just wanted to go to the same bar, and you know, or we found the TGI Fridays. It's great, you know, we could go there, and you know, we've got one of those in Nottingham. We've got one of those in Limerick, you know. So I think it's, it's it's trying to make sure that you know it's, it's not it's sort of thing. There are deep benefits from internationalization which are really valuable, but you have to, you have to proactively seek them out. You know, it's, you can't assume they happen naturally, um, so you have to work much harder at making sure that you can justify the carbon that you have to spend. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that's fantastic. No, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, Judith and I have had many conversations about this as well, about the, you know, the the evolution of T&E from, from purely recruitment numbers to, you know, needing to demonstrate impact um, and impact in the host country, you know. So what, what legacy are they leading? How are they, how are they building community? Um, I'm, I was curious from a, obviously both, both you and Judith occupy, you know, senior leadership positions within this world, um, within, say, broadly the same sort of, you know, geographic sector. I'm, I'm interested how at that level what are the conversations that are happening rounding around about international strategy where if if international strategy was TNE was never uniquely about money making i mean it was it's a slow burner at best um, and there always had to be this whether it's ideological or philosophical or there had to be an underpinning of of something else along along with it and you know from what you're saying all of which i agree with a lot of the conversations are about how do we do the less damage or, or how do we, how do we, you know, how can we minimize the thing we don't want to do while trying to do the thing that we want to do? And I'm wondering, how are these conversations happening where, you know, in the rooms you're saying, let's go and get X number of students because it's going to equal Y number of pounds or dollars, right? That's a, I mean, we all agree that that's not a good decision, but at least it's one that, you know, logically you can, you can see the link between. And now it's a case of, well, we want to measure benefit and impact by the least possible damage that we can do, and yet the damage that we can do is the is kind of the avenue that would traditionally bring us in the thing that we're you know it's kind of an odd an odd conversation and um, I'm, I'm very curious about how how those conversations are going and it, it made me think a lot about I heard you give a, a a presentation about work you're you're doing in Algeria in terms of capacity building with english language and 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 I was wondering how yeah how do those conversations take form i mean how we how are they how are they being discussed and or is it still that we don't have the language to do this yet and it, it's still balancing where we're coming out of against what we're we're still hoping to achieve 
does that does that make any sense yeah. as a question? Because it it feels like it's a bit of a broad. I think the, I think the kind of way you're you're sort of trying you're grappling with it is exactly the same way that in you know a number of executives or senior management teams they're also starting struggling to kind of grapple with this because you've got you've got kind of two um, mutually uh, contradictory goals. And, uh, I mean, I remember um, doing a study, which I unfortunately never published because I got, I got sidetracked by more interesting things in transnational. But I did a, I did a kind of, I started a study back in 2015. And one of the things I was really intrigued by was that uh, the Green Gown Awards were starting to become a thing. And, uh, you know, I was, when I was, at the time I was at Nottingham Trent, and Nottingham Trent was doing very well in these environments. You know, the buildings were cutting edge in terms of the, the design and so on. And so I, I, one of the things I did was I kind of collected everything in the public domain of all the UK universities, their environmental strategies and their internationalisation strategies. And they, at that point just were mutually exclusive, completely mutually exclusive. So the the environmental strategy would be all around the building, green buildings, uh, it would be around car parking, uh, cycle to work, you know, a, a lot of a lot of very good stuff. And then at the same time there'd be an, an internationalization strategy that'd say we're going to increase the number of international students by thirty percent. And the the two were kind of were separate conversations that never took place at the same table, um, and I think that I think now, uh, and it's really only in the last, I would say, it feels as if it's been only in the last kind of 12, 18 months that people are beginning to try to bring those two conversations together and say, how do we, how do we kind of. Uh, just you know, get the best trade-offs between these because uh, I mean we can't. And I think there was there was only literally probably two or three weeks ago a study published trying to estimate the carbon footprint of of British universities. That's the first time I've seen it attempted, and it showed about I think twelve percent one eighth was coming from the international travel of students and staff. Um, now that obviously is, is difficult to estimate, but. Historically, you never that, that was never a conversation. I mean, you know, the, you talked about the, about your environment in terms of your carbon footprint of your campus and the activities that took place on your campus, and then the international thing was something over here which we didn't talk about. I think I think we're all starting to have these conversations now that we're trying to bring together an integrated strategy, um, which is making sense of our place in the world and saying. You know, we, we, we have a responsibility as universities to provide leadership in, in terms of sustainable development goals. What does that mean, not just for our research or not just for our teaching, but what does it mean for our international connections? Um, so I, I think we're still feeling our way. Um, I haven't found any university yet that's, that's managed to crack it. And I think oftentimes uh, it goes... Um, people find it too difficult a conversation, and it goes it goes onto the back burner. I mean, I think the the classic example would be something like um, the European Association for International Education um, 
you know, was was kind of promoting sustainable travel. Um, but, you know, the first conference post-COVID in Barcelona, there were 6,000 people that went to Barcelona for three days. And we went to talk about sustainability. You know, I mean, it, 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 there's a kind of a paradox which is in your face. I mean, you know, there were people that travelled from all over the world, business class, to come and give talks on sustainability. Come on, this is, you know, this is kind of... Um, you know, we're not, we're not, we haven't really, we haven't connected all the dots up. And I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of it as well, because I, sometimes I can't see a way of doing what we need to do without the physical mobility. Um, but, uh, I mean, I, but, you know, I'll give you an example of just how, how much things have changed. Um, before COVID, um, I was, I was on council of the um, uh, Association of Commonwealth Universities, and we had two meetings a year in London. And the meetings were uh, one-day meetings with a dinner. And we all flew to London business class from all over the world to take place in a one-day meeting. So I'd literally arrive on a Sunday night, exhausted after travelling for 24 hours, and then I would um, spend Monday in meetings, nice dinner on Monday night, Tuesday morning head to the airport, because I'm flying back again. Um, now, the, we set up a, a, regional, um, a regional kind of network in, in the Oceania, and uh, the first meeting we were going to have was, was, I think, from memory, it would be about the 20th of February, and it was at the Australian National University, the 20th of February, 2020. And so the COVID crisis has started, but we don't yet know how bad it's going to become. Um, this meeting was for two hours, and it was face-to-face. Um, I looked at the travel schedule, and I was going to have to travel from, um, from Suva to Nandi to Sydney to Canberra. It was going to take me eight or nine hours on a Monday. I then would wait all Tuesday until Tuesday at two o'clock for a two-hour meeting, and then on Wednesday morning, I was going to take eight, nine hours to get back again. And I said, I don't want to do that. Can't we use it on Zoom? And Australian National University said, we have no video conferencing facility. And because I said I can't justify being away for three days for two hour meeting, they said, okay, we'll find a solution. And the solution was, they phoned me on a cell phone at two o'clock on Tuesday, and they put the cell phone in the middle of the table. And I thought, well, I mean, we would certainly now, we, I mean, I thought it was absurd three years ago, but you know, today we would just think, what were you thinking? You know, in what world was it okay for, for days flying, for two days flying, to attend a two-hour meeting? So I think we've moved, things have moved on, but we're still grappling with, you know, this bigger picture of, you know, how do we get what we've come to, you know, we've, We've come to understand the benefits of teaching and research. They're so powerful with international partnership, international collaboration. How do we get those benefits in a way which is more, which is more sustainable and more socially just? And I, I think that's an ongoing conversation. I think something else that you mentioned um, earlier on, Nigel, and, and I think in, in a way brings these two areas to, together, um, and, and also that starts to look at another angle of, of answering 
Christmas question around what the kind of conversations are around executive tables. You know, I'm thinking of in in the UK, uh, you know, where we are at the moment, let's say financially across universities, when you look at the impact that the Brexit has had on institutions, not just in terms of recruitment, of course, you know, European student recruitment has decreased dramatically, which has had a significant effect not only on the cultural makeup and richness of the institutions, but of course on the finances that those students bring. The funding for for research for um, for, for from European uh, funding streams, you know, has been and continues to be in serious doubt. And the funding for our home students has has plateaued. But of course, that means in real terms has has decreased significantly. So, you know, one of the only ways in which a, a university can be financially sustainable and then deal with the sustainability agenda, which costs a lot of money, um, is a real challenge, isn't it? And, it? and it's almost like, well, so where are those funding streams going to come from if we know that, that some of the traditional routes are you know, increasingly becoming a, a challenge and the kind of things that we want to do quite rightly, you know, are costing us a significant amount of money. And I would imagine, therefore, there's that element of the conversation, you know, for us to reflect on, you know, where, where can we look at trying to bridge that financial gap whilst at the same time coming back to your point, not only around the issues of, of climate change and sustainability, but social justice as well. You know, that therefore we don't want to be looking at doing something that you mentioned cross subsidising um, already, a, you know, a moment ago. But you, know, you can imagine how an international student might feel about that if they're, they're paying a certain amount for a programme and feeling as though actually are they getting that benefit themselves when they're coming to study if that programme is going to go, that funding is going to go and fund something else. I don't know what your thoughts are on that aspect of you know the financial challenges at institutions uh, yeah I, I mean i think you, you put uh, your finger on one of the biggest um one of the biggest sort of challenges in all of this is that um just as the you know that the, that kind of international sort of export education has been uh, a fabulously successful business model um and you know that kind of sort of virtuous circle that you you know, the revenue that you bring in is then invested back into the research, into the facilities, into the top stars. Um, that pushes you further up the league tables, it increases your attractiveness. Um, it, so it's, it's a very powerful model and it's difficult to wean yourself off that. It's even harder to wean yourself off that model when the other sources of income are beginning to dry up, and uh, which I think makes it even more difficult for some of the, uh, for some of the UK universities and the Australian universities to wean themselves off that model. I mean, if we think that we're now stuck with the domestic undergraduate fees, which is the majority of the students, uh, I think, is it 9,250? Um, and it's been pretty much frozen at this level um, for a number of years, and with inflation above 10%, you know, it, all the other costs are, are going through the roof. Um, so, you know, you're looking then, well, what are the other streams? Now, research is a slightly tricky one in the sense that there's, not, there's no real margin in research. 
Um, I think the loss of access to Horizon Europe, which is a, a nearly 100 billion euro over six years, is, is, is absolutely devastating for British universities. But it's not so much the revenue, because there wouldn't have been a positive margin in that. But of course, it would allow a, a lot of research to take place that now won't be able to take place and have to be sorted from other areas. Um, I think that then also makes it much harder. The cross-subsidy thing I find sometimes um, people be can become a little bit um, a bit hung up on the idea that cross-subsidisation is, 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 is innately a bad thing. Um, and uh, I think that that's... I mean, if, you, if we thought about it, if we were just wanting to... I mean, I used to say to people, if we just wanted to make money... Uh, as a university, we wouldn't have any PhD students. They're a nightmare. I mean, they, they cost so much money to educate, you know, and Chris educates dozens of them, you know, he's supervising heaps of these people. I mean, you're just losing your university so much money, Chris. Um, you should stop it at once. Um, I mean, really, what we would do was, was just have first years. I mean, first years are really profitable because they, you pack them into lecture theatres and sort of three or four hundred students and you put one not very well qualified but entertaining person in front of them, and, and it's all fabulous. Um, so, uh, I mean, we, I remember when I was at, uh, you know, when I was in the New Zealand system in, in, for a long time, we had, uh, we had a kind of hidden business model that we didn't really realise. And our, our hidden business model was that we had open access to university. So you could go to university, anyone could go to university. You had to notionally have a pulse at the age of 18, but if you didn't have a pulse, you could wait till you were 20 and then you could go with open access, completely open access. And we had no restriction on the number of, so, there, so it was very generously funded. You could get, the tuition was paid, and you got maintenance grants or loans, um, and there was no restriction on the number of times you could retake courses. So what we had were, uh, we had lots of students with negative GPAs who never got past the first year. I mean, I think when I did a paper on this and made myself very unpopular in about 2009, um, at that point we had, I think, the worst or the second worst graduation record in the OECD. Less than 50% of students finished within eight years. So most of them, like the German system, and most of them were just lifestyle students. They just took first-year courses that they never passed, and they just each year kept taking the same courses. But, you know, we were making 95% margin on those courses, and that was being used to cross-subsidise the research and the advanced teaching. Um, so, you know, I, it, was, it was interesting when, we, when the penny finally dropped that and realised, well, how is it that we've got an SSR of 25 to 1 but our average teaching load is four hours a week. How is that? How does that work? Because we've got a couple of tutors teaching these monster first-year classes that everyone fails, and they just do it every year. So you know, you've got you've got these. You know, sometimes, I mean, that was a, that was a that was a kind of unintended, unrecognised cross subsidy on an industrial scale. But you have got cross subsidy that's taking place everywhere. I mean, you know, the social sciences are cross subsidising the sciences. The uh, first years are cross-subsidised the second year, second years are cross-subsidised the third years, everyone is cross-subsidising the PhD students. Um, but when you think about it, you know, you need the whole ecosystem together to provide 
the, the education and the research. So if you didn't have the PhDs, if you didn't have the highly, you know, the, the highly productive professors, um, if you didn't have, uh, you know, a, a lot of the kind of more advanced programs, you, you wouldn't have any first years apply. I mean, the first years are coming because they want to be part of a vibrant, they want to be part of a good university, they want to be part of a vibrant community, they want to see a pathway through to higher study. So I think, I think the, the, the nature of higher education is there are cross-subsidies that abound between disciplines, between years, um, and, um, and in a sense, it's fine. It's a bit like we're all part of a society and we all pay our taxes and I don't go into, I don't every year say, well, oh, look, I paid these taxes and I haven't got a pension yet and I didn't get sick this year, so I've had no hospital treatment. You're part of that kind of ecosystem. But, but I think, um, obviously, if the cross-subsidies get too extreme, people begin to balk. And, uh, and of course, you can then get situations where uh, fleet-of-footed universities can begin to cherry-pick off. So if you say, I mean, something like University of Law can come in and say, well, look, you know, you're all charging 9250 for your LLB. Actually, it doesn't cost you anything like that. So if we're only going to offer specialist programs with, the, with nothing that needs cross-subsidizing, we could come in and take that market off at a much lower cost. So you open up opportunity for disruption from that source. What is... Be nice. I mean, notwithstanding, therefore, then that we've all decided that you know professors are pretty much a bit of a bit of a waste of time, which would make this you know oh, yeah. this, bit, that. this podcast be a bit quiet. <laughs> PhD students, goodness me! But Mike is thinking about what what Chris said right, right at the beginning of this, actually, about the fact that when many of us were engaging with TNE early doors when it first even when it, the the term first started. That universities weren't particularly going in, into it to, to make money. Might this now be the time when universities, however, are starting now to look towards different and newer models or, or, or older models of uh, the resurgence of older models of TNE to try and help plug some of that financial gap so that they will actually be looking for TNE models that will bring back into the institution a significant amount of investment? Um. Well, I think Chris put it, you know, kind of expressed it quite well in, in, uh, early on in this conversation around the fact that, you know, when universities went into Tinny, some of them might have gone in thinking they were going to make a fast buck, but quite quickly realised that that isn't how the world works. I think in some ways the, um, uh, that boat sailed. I mean, the TNE that was very fashionable in the late 90s and early 2000s was largely was was essentially commercial in the main. I mean, there were the the first movers, you know, the University of Nottingham and so on that went with the campus model. But a lot of it was franchises, um, where you, it was fairly quick and dirty. I mean, you were just simply franchising out the program. I mean, when I went to Nottingham Trent in uh, in 2011, we had 7,000 students offshore in franchises. It was phenomenal. I think at the time, the university had only about 20. 4,000 students, so we had, you know, almost a kind of third of the students were transnational students. Um, and these franchises were pretty, were relatively light touch, so they were, they were uh, quite profitable because 
you were really just taking a royalty fee for the kind of quality assurance and um, the moderation. Um, but I think the kind of, um, you know, the transnational education that delivers the longer term benefits in capacity building and so on, the kind of branch campus type model, requires uh, a lot of investment. Um, and there's, there's uh, you know, there's, there's very little short-term payback in terms of often, you know, and again, you know, Chris has worked in two of these, um, at least two of these uh, major operations where, you know, you're having to build a campus from scratch. And I remember uh, Chris's boss, former boss, um, Christy Angus sort of saying, you know, one of the things that she found, and I shouldn't put words in her mouth because she's not in this conversation, but it was a fascinating comment because she sort of said that, uh, you know, there was a view in, in some universities that, you know, these campuses, you know, if you had 6,000 students, that was uh, very profitable. And she said, well, you're not even a critical, you know, you're not even a critical mass at that level. You know, if you had 6,000 more students in Nottingham, it would be highly profitable. To get 6,000 students in Malaysia, where you've got to build the infrastructure and then service the costs of that construction and so on, it, it's, you're not at minimum efficient scale, probably, until it gets 10,000. So I think there's, there's probably... We're much wiser now about both the benefits of transnational education and the costs of TME than we were in the, in the, in the kind of halcyon early days. Um, and, and, and even more recently, I mean, we've seen with Reading in Malaysia uh, coming a little bit of a proper with unrealistic expectations of the kinds of returns that they could make in terms of, you know, the enrolments and the profitability. Um, so I, my, my kind of strong feeling is that TM has an important role to play in a kind of a more sustainable internationalization future, but it isn't as a kind of a quick fix for the revenues. And uh, I suppose, I mean, you remember back in 2014 when there was, there was a lot of interest in the British government in 2013-14, immediately after the, um, the new visa regime had a, had a negative impact on the international crew. There was a lot of interest in could TA plug the gap and there was, there was a, a, a lot of push from, from, uh, from the government in, in the UK for universities to go into TNE. And, um, and I was, I was very sceptical, I have to say. Um, and eventually the, um, uh, I think it must have been, uh, was it the Department for University and Skills, whatever it was called that week, um, they actually uh, funded a, a project to work out the value of TNE. And it's been repeated at least two or three times. Um, and what they found was that the, the value of TNE in terms of the revenue streams coming back to the British Home University was very low. You know, the kind of average royalty, I think, on franchises, I think this was Neil Kemp's work, you know, they found at that point it was about somewhere in the order of £400. Uh, per student. Um, the, the most dramatic one was, of course, the um, Oxford Brooks, where Oxford Brooks claimed to have 300,000 TNE students and they paid £130 to upgrade their ACCA qualification into a degree by submitting a dissertation. So the royalty to 
Oxford Brooks was £130 per student if they chose to submit for the dissertation, out of which they had to mark it. Um, so I can remember kind of thinking, you know, you'd need, working out that you'd need something like 150,000 of these students a year to submit their dissertation to get the same revenue that they got from the 3,000 students on campus. So these are kind of, you know, I, I, said, I, think, I think the debate's moved on. Um, so, so there are some some students and some financial models that are not not as um, good as PhD students. Then, so, so the resurgence there of the PhD <laughs> students could come back. <laughs> Nigel, I've got about fifteen questions to ask you, and I think I've managed to ask you about three. Um, oh, sorry, but we'll we'll no. It, you know, it's just been it's been fascinating. We really hope that you come back and. Uh, and join us again because I, I think that there's the, there's such a lot that we can talk about. But you know, you've raised some really important, I think, points for us today. Um, that that it will be good to probe a little more in the future. I really like the the discussions that we were starting to have um, around sustainability, around climate change, and around the, the social justice agendas and how those could come together. So it would, would be really great you know to to have you back to talk in a little bit more detail about some of those other areas i think and to answer some of the other questions that we've got that we'd really like to ask yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be, be uh, i'd love to i mean i think it's just always great to be able to have these kind of free-flowing conversations and test ideas out with other people who are also thinking about the same sorts of things so it's been uh, it's been absolutely uh, it's been a joy so it's been nice to sort of catch up with you even virtually, uh, uh, from, uh, from Dubai and from uh, Swansea. Plus, if we call this part one of two or three, I don't have to go away feeling quite so bad about all my professional life choices in the PhD world. We can just, this could be the beginning of a conversation and I can redeem myself in, in part two. Because if my vice chancellor is listening, you know, we, we've graduated more PhD students than anybody in the Gulf which is for us as a badge of honour. <laughs> However, <laughs> so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll come back to this when I've thought of a suitable retort, um, by which point we'll have graduated more PhD students, thus compounding the issue further. <laughs> um, but it's been an absolute pleasure um, having you with us, Nigel. Thank you very much indeed. Um, and yeah, um, we hope to have you back on again uh, uh, before too long, if that's okay. Okay. Fantastic, and, and congratulations on the PhD students. I mean, it's not, it's not about the money, it's about the, the capacity that you build and the people's lives have changed, and so, uh, you know, that, that's all to the good. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed.